Content Advisory. This talk discusses pornography and sexual abuse. Radio. And the walls came tumbling down. A testimony by James Parker at the Immaculata Mission School 2017, held at the Launceston Church Grammar School in Tasmania. We lived in a relatively what we call a working class village. It was a mining area, a coal mining area. And if you know anything about the history of Britain, and I can't expect you to remember this at all, but, but certainly in the, um, back in the uh, 80s, the mining um, area was a very, very difficult and traumatic place to live. There was a lot of strikes, a lot of hunger, uh, a, a lot of violence going on, and communities being very much divided as well. And my father is a professional man in that situation itself. Now, here's some pictures from me in my, my childhood. This, I know, I know uh, okay. One of my earliest memories is this. You laugh, I cried. So I'm at kindy, okay, all you the kids, and I'm there, my twin sister's there, and I'm kind of playing around the little boys, etc. And um, uh, my twin sister decides to walk up to me with a pile of girls uh, behind me, puts her hand along the side of my trousers and pulls them down and says, look, my brother's wearing my frilly knickers, and they're pink, okay? I was shamed. I was shamed that day. That's why it's my earliest memory, because I, cr- I remember crying and crying and crying. I remember being given the biscuit tin and told, eat as many as you want. You don't do that to a three-year-old. <laughs> That's how bad the trauma was, okay? I share that with you because it was very, very significant into how the pattern of my life then began to be shaped. That particular day, it's not that my mother was trying to create a transvestite or anything crazy like that out of me. Basically what happened is she got five kids and sometimes when you've got five kids, you, you just run out of certain clothes and you just put on whatever you can put on. And she expected nobody to be able to see those knickers. On top of that, because my twin sister and I were so interlocked with each other's character and personality, my parents decided to send me to an all-girls school to help her to settle in. Okay? Now, you laugh, there were two other boys in the school, only several hundred girls and the three boys, but, you know, I wasn't totally alone. But my life became bunny rabbits and ballet, which is a very, very different circumstance than if you were put into a group with a pile of boys at that stage in your life. And at the age of six, I was ripped out of that school and I was sent to a school with my two brothers. It was an all-boys school, which was basically bashing, bruising, balls, you know, all the other bees you can imagine. And I used to weep at the end of, of of that street, tugging at my mother's skirt saying, I don't want to go in, I just don't want to go in. I felt so divorced from that setting itself. That's where my life was at at that stage. I'm conscious some of you here are quite young. I hope you've got somebody to talk to. And come and talk to me if you need to, because some of the stuff in here tonight is going to be a bit challenging. But I don't want to hide it back from you, because a lot of what I'm sharing in here tonight, people are coming to me with aspects of these stories constantly. And I believe that we as the church, we don't need to be afraid before the cross of reality. Because truly, Christ has dealt with our shame on the cross. At the age of eight years old, um, I, uh, we had a tree house in the garden at home. We had 
big old sort of cedar trees and oak trees, things that you'd have in, in the UK. Um, I'm not saying they're not old here as well, but, but we'd have big, big trees, you know, a couple of hundred years old in the garden. And so we had a, a, a tree house about 15 feet off the ground. Well, no parent would climb 15 feet to look into a tree house. And it was all decked out with old carpet and, you know, and tarpauling and all these lovely things. It looked like a bunning show home, really. But anyway, because um, we'd done it up so beautifully. But it became a bit of a den not just for um, my older brothers, uh, my twin sister, but also for many of the kids along the street where I lived. And it became a den where really, because it was very, very dark in there, all sorts of things happened. And all I can say is this, is that's where I was first exposed to pornography. And it's not pornography like we know today, which is totally in your face, and, and well, all pornography is inappropriate. I'm talking black and white images that backed up some stories, is what I'm talking about. But its effect on me at that age, the effect on any of us at any age is profound. And I want to bring up this topic a little bit. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more tomorrow because it is something that literally is killing our society as well as killing aspects of our church as well. I was first exposed to pornography at the age of eight. Did that happen first or did my sexual abuse first begin to happen first? I don't know. But what I do know is this, at the age of eight, I was suddenly plunged into a world of secretive, shh, sexy stuff. We don't talk about sexy stuff. and We don't talk about shame. Why don't we talk about shame? Because we feel ashamed when we talk about shame. So that's why you rarely hear shame talked about. But you know what? Jesus died for our shame. <laughs> So if we don't talk about our shame or we don't learn what it's about, we fail to take a hold of the gift of freedom that Jesus wants to bring to us. I was sexually abused by two particular men over a period of three years. The first was a Christian teacher at school, a married man in an evangelical school. And even worse in the midst of the situation is he began to sexually abuse me. And he said to me, this is your punishment because your scripture work is bad. Now, he groomed my older brothers to absolutely love him. So my brothers would go home and go, oh, Mr. X, he's amazing, he's wonderful, etc." And of course, I go and going, I don't like Mr. X. Oh, what's your problem, James? Don't, don't like Mr. X. And of course, he told me if I tell anybody, it will just get worse. So I learned what it was to put a lid on my shame and make it as firmly closed as possible because I didn't want it to get worse. Because I'd been sexualized, I reckon... This, this is the particular reason as to why one of my older brothers, older friends, I'm eight, he's 13, he also begins to sexually abuse me for three years. And at the age of 16, he basically drops me like a hot cake because he gets a girlfriend. So if I'm not being abused at school every week, during the holidays I'm being abused by my brother's friend. Now, I'm a scholar at school. I'm doing well. I was a bit cocky then like I am now. I'll be honest about it. <laughs> So nobody really understood necessarily what was going on, apart from the fact that when I did mess up and my anger was beginning to come up as it's going to, what happened, people say, oh, it's probably because he's adopted, but he's got a few issues, you know, he's different to his brothers. And I'm very different to my brothers, I'm pleased to say. There's nothing wrong with that. So what happened is nobody could see the incredible pain and the depth of wounding that was happening in my life at that time. Interestingly is this. The teacher who was sexually abusing me was calling all the boys to Jesus at a weekly prayer group at school. I never suggested Jesus until the age of 11 when another lad in my year had a breakdown at the age of 11 and the rumour went around that this teacher had been interfering with him. 
And of course, I was in shock. I thought it was only happening to me. And because this kid had left, I then was in such shock. And my best mate at the time said, what's wrong with you? I said, the rumors. He said, yeah, what about them? I said, don't tell anybody, but it's been happening to me. He said, you've got to tell somebody. I said, no, you can't. And then literally, that, that, the rumors were Monday, I remember it. And on Wednesday, he pushed me into the head teacher. So I'm 11 years old, bang, smack into the head teacher. And he goes, Parker, what's your problem? Like a head teacher would. I said, sir, can, can, can I talk to you about Mr. X? And he sort of grabs me by the arm and takes me into this dark room. You don't do this, by the way, today. He says, what, what's going on? I said, the rumors about Mr. X, the same's been happening to me. He said, how long for? I said, a few years. He said, that's it, he's going to have to go. And by the Friday, the teacher had gone. And nobody ever said another word to me ever again. And I say that to you deliberately because that's the climate of a world that we were living in 40 or so years ago. That's what it was like. So when you think, you know, surely somebody knew something and surely somebody could have done something when we look and judge the church, the church is, or, or different institutions today, I want you to know things were very, very different in the mentality in those days. I'm not saying that what people did was, was not wrong. I think more could have been done, but that was the mentality at the time. Do you want to park that with you, okay? So there I am, literally at the age of 11, the teacher's gone, and the head teacher then invites boys, he starts taking on the thing to invite boys to say yes to Jesus. I said yes to Jesus at that time. And he looked at me and said, but you've been coming here every week for ages. Surely you've made this decision. I said, no, I couldn't make that decision in front of that other man. But I was hungry for Jesus. I made the decision and nobody followed up. So I felt literally like I was saying, Jesus, I want you as my Lord, but I'm a little boat bobbing about on a stormy, stormy water. The, the picture there below the word childhood is me around the age of sort of eight and a half. And I look at that often and just think the, the vacancy in my face. I went from being quite a joyous child to something being stripped away from me. Now it just seemed to be a bit of a trouble cause. You know, when somebody changes in personality and character, something's going on, is all I can say. This is me in my teenage life. God, these pictures are embarrassing. Anyway, <laughs> I love you lot. They're your family, so that's okay. Strangely enough, um, being a, a bit of a scholar and being a, a little bit clever, I, um, I took two scholarships, one to an Anglican school and one to a Catholic school at the time, both private schools, something like the grammar school here and, and a similar Catholic one. And I got both scholarships. And my parents sat me down and said, which one are you going to take? I said, well, I don't know. Which one do you reckon? They said, well, if you take the Anglican one, you'll travel an hour every day and you'll be there on your own. If you take the Catholic one, you're 10 minutes away and your twin sister can go. I said, I'll go to the Catholic one. <laughs> and I ended up, I could say by coincidence, I think it's more by God incidence or providence. I ended up in a school with somebody called the Jesuits. <laughs> Thank goodness Pope Francis is one of them. <laughs> But at the age of 13, things began to change. God's hand was upon my life through all of this. I hope you will see shortly. By the time I was 14, my life was beginning to plummet downwards because I remember I put the lid on all this pain. I talked to nobody. I said nothing to anybody. I'd constantly been exposed to pornography through all that time from the age of eight onwards. So by the time I'm 14, nearly half my life as I hit my teenage years has been pornographied. I called the lesbian and gay switchboard at the age of 14. Now, in those days, telephones were stuck to the wall. I know it seemed like years ago, but that's what happened. <laughs> stuck to the wall, and the number came up on the phone bill. <gasps> so I was frightened to call the number in case mum and dad saw this, this number, you see, on the phone bill. 
But I called them and said, Look, I, 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 I think I'm gay. And they said, oh, yeah, you probably are. That's okay. You'll settle down and all will be fine and it'll all be okay. Now, my life was just beginning to become a bit of a hurricane or a tornado at this stage. I was 100% same-sex attracted. And I didn't know who I was and where I was going. Um, I was in pain. As I said, I was in pain. But I also, at that stage, had the opportunity to go to something called Godspell, which you might have heard of. And the Methodists, which is like sort of the Uniting Church and somewhere over here, were putting on Godspell. So I went to Godspell, and it was all about the life of Jesus. And at the end, they said, you can give your life to Jesus. Well, I just leapt out my chair, and I ran like crazy down there. I wanted to give my life to Jesus. I wanted that love. I was hungry for that love. And this lovely policeman led me in the sinner's prayer, and he was great. And he said, you know, well, I'll walk with you, and it'll all be fine and great. And I thought, at last, I feel I can connect with somebody and start, you know, speaking about my in, inward stuff that's going on. And this policeman wrote to me twice, and then I never heard from him again, even though I kept writing to him. So again, I felt abandoned in some way or other in my own spiritual journey. By the age of 16, I was um, becoming alcohol dependent. I wasn't an alcoholic as such. Uh, I just needed regular amounts of alcohol just to try and numb the pain within me. Um, I found even by the age of 16, I was being given a clothing allowance by my parents. It was called responsible financial management. And I was irresponsible in my financial management because I would, I would become addicted to pornography. And I was trying to go into the adult bookshops and put on a deep voice at the age of 16. And I'm as camp as Christmas at this stage going, oh, hi, I'm trying to pretend I'm 18, you know. And they're still selling me pornography hardcore pornography like crazy. Um, I was um, uh, drinking so often and so much that I ended up being raped uh, at the age of 16 and the age of 17 by two different teachers from my school. Both of those men are now dead. Again, this is more pain. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody. So it's not surprising at the age of 17 that I actually burst into tears at Easter when I was 17 years of age and I came out to my parents and uh, I wept and wept and wept and wept and then I wept and wept and wept and wept and wept and wept and wept some more than wept, then I wept. And uh, then I said, I'm gay. And they said, yeah, we know. And we love you. And this is your home. And it always will be your home, James. It's everything I wanted to hear because I was listening to all the music at the time, which was about running away, turn away, you know, about leaving home, about being rejected, etc. The message I was receiving was, I'll never be accepted. I'm going to be rejected, so I prepare myself for this now. So there I was. I was ready for that rejection. Well, I wasn't really ready. I just thought, this is going to be my lot. And my parents said, we love you and we're here for you and we accept you. They gave me the very message that the church gives to us today. We love you and we're here for you. And this is your home and it always will be. And we do accept you, absolutely. My mother also said this to me. She's got no recollection, but uh, mothers have a way of doing this. She said, James, if ever you feel there's a different way, never be frightened to take it or try it. I'm thinking, oh, for goodness sake, you've not heard what I said. But her words cut deep into me. The fact that I can remember them several decades later means that it must have been very, very powerful for me. But that's what happened. What my sadness is this, is I didn't feel there was anything in my Catholic school that could help me at the time. And I didn't feel there's anything in my local church community, which admittedly was Anglican, that could help me at the time. And the Anglican church certainly had very, very little, if any, teaching whatsoever around homosexuality at that stage. But there I was, in a sense, my sexuality was going crazy. But I'll tell you this about being in a Catholic school. 
I remember waking up in the middle of the night. I didn't sleep much in those days because basically I was trying to get alcohol and I was out and about. My studies were beginning to go downhill even though I managed to kind of pretend I was still a spit of a scholar. But uh, I, re- I barely slept at night. I remember it. And I remember the middle of one night getting up thinking, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. And I got up and we, this, this school was on the top of a hillside in the middle of nowhere, almost like the top of Mount Wellington or something crazy like that. And, um, and it was dark. And I walked towards the chapel and I walked down the long, long, long corridor and I could see this little red light at the end. And I was told that apparently Jesus lived in this shiny box at the end there. That's what I was told. The Jesuits, remember? Anyway. But I went down there and I climbed onto the high altar. I climbed onto it. And this part of my head met the part of the tabernacle. Bang, bang, bang. And I literally, I head-butted the tabernacle time and time again. And I'll be honest with you, I said, you better effing do something with my life. I don't need to mention the word, you know what it is? But I was really honest with God. I said, you need to do this with my life. I had no idea where I was going. I was suicidal inside. I wanted to take my life. At this stage, I was beginning to think, I really think I am a woman in a man's body. I'm so confused, etc. Now, what I didn't tell you is this. Having been at the girls' school, when I went to the boys' school, guess who got the part of the girl in every single play going? Me. Constantly being affirmed in that role, constantly. Even going up to the Jesuit school at 13, where there were some girls, not that many at that stage, I was still given the girls' parts. My whole life had been layered with this sense of the feminine identity, the feminine identity all the way. Um... I was in a rugby school. I was frightened to death of breaking a nail. I really was. So there I am, at the age of 17, 18, headbutting the tabernacle. There was also an elderly Jesuit at school, and he'd been a prisoner of war with the Japanese. Now, if you know anything about the Japanese prisoner of war camps, they are horrendous. This man was love on legs because he'd learned to suffer and to bring it all before Christ himself to the cross. And one day, I remember watching some of my mates at the age of 17 kind of crawling into the chapel on a Saturday night to get a confession. And um, I didn't quite understand what this confession thing was, but they seemed different. All I can say is they seemed different when they came back. You might not realise that, Catholic people. (laughs) But you seem different when you come back. (laughs) To those of us who never had it, you know? So I had a point. I I went and knocked on the door of this Jesuit one day, and I said, uh, he said, he invited me in. He said, what can I do for you? I said, "I, I want this confession thing. He said, well, okay, sit down. I said, okay. He said, well, I said, I don't know what to do. He said, well, what is it that you kind of want to share? And I just went, Bleh, and I vomited my everything all over him, basically. All my stuff. And after about an hour, I said to him, but I came for confession. What am I supposed to do? He said, you've just confessed. He said, um, he said uh, you're not a Catholic. He said, but I want you to look me in the eyes. And he forgave me of my sins. You know, he, at that moment, he was Christ for me. And I can say this, because I'd never been forced to confession. In a sense, I was crawling into the confessional at 17. I walked out that room, I was 12 feet off the ground. And I believe that was another injection into my life of saying, live, don't die. Because I was suicidal, as you can imagine, from so much of what I experienced. I know, boof on hair, give me a break. <laughs> Listen, I say this, you know, at the age of 18, basically I was wearing eyeliner, I was wearing foundation, I wanted to highlight, you know, accentuate parts of my face. My sister used to have this thing called Ultra Glow. Girls, have you got those sort of really fluffy kind of brushes where you go, you know? I had about five of those, you know, anyway. 
And there I was, I was this camp guy, and my walk was sort of, the, you know what a mince is? You know, some guy, you've got some guys who sort of mince, and they sort of wiggle their hips a little bit, and they've got little steps. That was me. That was me then at that stage. So there I am, the age of 18. I've just finished at high school, and I've got a place in university in London. Um, so I head to London at 18, in the mid-80s, late-80s. And there's a lot of HIV around the place. I think my parents are scared stiff, but God bless them. My parents, who are people of prayer, are still praying for me. To be accepted in the gay community, generally, you are what your body is. Putting it bluntly, I ended up being promiscuous. I'm not proud of this at all, but I'm saying this to you. I had over 200 sexual contacts. And some of you go, what? That's a very small number if you're a practicing homosexual. Many of my friends have had well over 2,000. But we don't talk about that. Because people get shocked by it or they go, oh, we don't like that. <laughs> so we try and paint a nice light, which is why I'm deliberately talking about the reality. Because if we can't face our reality and bring it to the cross, we can't move beyond the cross into resurrection as well. I saw it as my role to set up a lesbian and gay group. Now, I'm in a Catholic college. Okay, I've ended up in this Catholic, I've got these Catholics everywhere. Still Anglican, I'm in this Catholic college in London. And as I say, I see it as my responsibility. I'm the first person to come out in this section of the university in London. They were the days when there wasn't equity, diversity, and their own building, and lots of money, and rainbow flags, the rest of it. It was just, it's just where I was. Um, I became very involved in gay pride and attending the lesbian and gay centre in the centre of London and was very much part of looking at the strategies as to help people understand and to accept that homosexuality is something very, very normal. Normal childhood, normal everything. So as part of those strategies, just very quickly, because I don't want to miss not saying this to you, the things we were discussing in the mid-late 80s were this, is that literally we have to infiltrate and take leadership as gay men and women, gay and lesbian men and women. There's only ever LNG in those days. The BTQQIA P plus 2S has suddenly arrived anyway. Um, and I don't mean that mocking now. I just mean, but literally, it was just, we're just lesbian and gay. That's it. Um, uh, we need to infiltrate and take leadership in um, entertainment. Not difficult. The media, tick. Education, think about safe schools, tick. Um, the military, tick. Uh, healthcare, particularly psychiatry, psychology, tick. Um, politics, big tick. <laughs> and the last bastion we knew would be difficult, but we needed to homosexualize it would be sport. The reason why sport is difficult, because you can't do sport unless you've got a body. And as we learned from Paul today, our bodies scream about the bride and the groom. They scream all that humanity is and our divine identity itself. So 30 or so years ago, we were talking about strategies to try and change how society would see things a couple of generations later. That's you lot, by the way, in case you didn't know that. <clears throat> I was still praying. I was raised in this Christian home. And I was still praying. My prayer was for Mr. Wright. Now, I don't know whether you're supposed to pray that or not when you're a gay man. All I know is this is God hears the cry of our hearts. And I mean this very seriously. God knows the cries of your heart, of your love needs at this stage in your life and every stage of your life. At that stage, I don't think I trusted one man on the universe. And you can understand why. What happened is I'd been abused on a number of occasions by people in authority and those who I went to with my pain, they just... 
they abandoned me too and they didn't serve me. So I was still praying for Mr. Wright. And what happened is, um, even though I was in this Mr. Promiscuous lifestyle, etc., I met this lovely guy called Steve. And Steve ticked all my boxes. Now, my boxes, and let me tell you this, is Steve had been a soldier in the army, so he's kind of a bit of a macho guy, you know, and he kind of got the tats and the muscles and the, the medals and the Falklands and all the rest of it. And, of course, I'm this sort of camp little 18, 19, 19 20-year-old going, hi, you see. And he's like, oh, hello, kind of thing. So we, we get together, the two of us. And we're totally faithful to each other. Totally faithful. Quite an unusual thing in the gay community, to be totally monogamous, but we were. It was in the midst of this relationship, I'd been going out with Steve for about a year at this stage, and I'm taking Steve to university, and there's a Thursday night disco, and there's me and Steve trying to get off with each other in the middle of the disco, and everybody's kind of going, but they're all kind of, oh yeah, we accept you, you're the college queer, that's okay, you know, because that's what, what, what we're supposed to do, you see. They're very accepting of me, but really deep down, nobody's really engaging with me. But there's a Catholic guy at university, and he's in, get, beginning to engage with me. God is putting my life onto his heart. That's why it's so important we're listening to God about what he's doing in the life of people around us. And one day I, I, made a, I did a bit of an arty-farty, crafty thing for him. And he, wanted, he, he went to the Lord. He tells me this now. He said he went to the Lord and said, Lord, how do I repay James for his generosity to me? And he sensed the Lord was saying, invite him to a Life in the Spirit seminar. What you don't know is this. There I am, 19, 20 years of age, and I'm pretty good in my hands. I'm a bit creative, as I said. And I'm silver serving, basically. Every Friday night, I'm following the royal family around. So I'm doing the Queen and Prince Philip and Charles and Diane and those days, Margaret Thatcher and different people like that. So I'm like, you know, more Brussels sprouts. Oh, no, mom, you don't eat Brussels sprouts. <laughs> you know, Philip. Well, I'm not quite calling him Philip. You know, but anyway. Um, but I'm there serving the royal family on a Friday night. I'm busy every Friday night because the royals are always doing something in London. And when you get into that type of job, they want to keep you because they realise you've got the diplomacy to be able to deal with the job. So this fella, his name is Damien. Some of you may know him. Damien Stain, if you know Damien. Anyway, dear Damien, there we are. I'm down the corridor from him at university. And um, I'm, I, I decided I came home from lectures one Thursday afternoon. And uh, I went into my room at university. Because I was there Monday to Thursday and I was at Steve's place for most of the weekend. And on that particular day, I took my Bible off the shelf and I blew the dust off the top because that's how often I'm reading it. I just opened it up and there was one of those passages where it said, greet each other with a brotherly kiss. And I thought nothing of it. Close my Bible. I'm also a flautist. Okay. So I went and thought, I'll go and play my flute at Mass on Thursday evening because it's a music-y Mass thing. You know, I'm kind of hanging around with these Catholics, but I'm a bit wary of the remember. Anyway, so if I go to, it's good for my musicianship. So if I go to Mass, and I play my flute, and then I put my flute away at the end, and I decided to stay. And on that particular day, we put chairs all around the sanctuary, one of those intimate Masses, you know. And I'm on this sort of kidney-crushing plastic chair like you're on tonight, you know. And I sat there, and, um, and I had this sudden inspiration uh, to go and greet each other with a brotherly kiss. And I opened my eyes, and there's only one person left in the whole chapel, and it's Damien. So I stand up, and I walk over towards Damien. Now remember, I'm the college queer, okay? So I walk over to Damien, and I kiss him on the cheek. <laughs> And he opens his eyes, he goes, oh, he called me Jim. All right, Jim, because he's got a bit of a London accent, Dame, you know, he goes, all right, Jim. He says, what are you doing tomorrow night? I thought I've got a hot date here. No, anyway, um, I said, well, nothing, actually. He said, he said, do you want to come along to this group meeting? The few of us are going. I said, yeah, okay, I'll go. It was one of those rare times I had nothing on a Friday night. And I went along to this thing called the Life and the Spirit Seminar. And these young people were going for it like you've been doing tonight and over these past few days. And I was blown away 
by the love in the room. The long and the short of it is this. Within three weeks, I'd made the sinner's prayer. I said, Lord Jesus, if there's anything that stands in the way between you and me having the love affair you've called me to, that the others are telling me about, I'm sorry and I repent. I ask you to send your Holy Spirit. So somebody prayed with me and they said I looked like a brick. (laughs) Trying to get God. I felt nothing. People were laughing and crying, having a great time. I felt nothing. But I made the prayer. Friday night, went back to Steve's for the weekend. Monday morning, went back to university. Dame says, wasn't it a great Friday night? I said, yeah, okay. He said, what did you experience? I said, nothing. He said, did you make the prayer? I said, I did. He said, now it's time for you to walk in faith. He said, I invite you to try and be still for two minutes a day. That was like asking, I don't know, a Jew to throw himself into the pig pen and roll around in it. I mean, you know... (laughs) Me, quiet and still for two minutes, no way. You know, I'm this, in everybody's face all the time. But I went with the grace of God. I tell you this deliberately. I took the tiniest steps. He was inviting me to take the narrow road. I began to pray. Week number one, two minutes prayer. Week number two, three minutes prayer. Week number four, four minutes... Five minutes by the end of the week. (laughs) By about week number six, Steve starts saying to me, and I'm around at his place at the weekend because we're still a couple, you know? He says, there's something different about you. Is it that Friday night thing you're going to? I said, yeah, I think it is. He said, you think I can come along? I said, yeah, you come along as well. So he comes along. He's a few years older than me. So basically, here we are. We are this gay couple committed to each other. You know, we're at the discos doing all the stuff we're doing at the discos and out in the clubs and everything else, Friday, Saturday night in London. And suddenly, we're both here in the midst of these young Christian people, and we're worshipping God, and we're celebrating God. And Steve makes the same prayer as I make, the the sinner's prayer. And he says, Lord, if there's anything that's stopping your love from coming, I'm sorry. Send me your love in the power of your spirit. The two of us are given the gift of tongues. Basically, we're beginning to read scripture. We're hungry to read God's word. So there we are as this gay couple. He, by the way, Steve is a lapsed Catholic. Don't tell my parents, okay? They like him, but I didn't tell them that bit. Steve wants to start going back to mass. So I start going back to mass with Steve as well. And we are the couple that turn up at mass with their Bibles on a Sunday. How many Catholics go to mass with their Bibles yeah, right, okay. So this gay couple like, hi, got our Bibles, you know, we're into Mass, etc. So, um, and we start getting invited to all these dinner parties, you know. Oh, we've got this lovely gay couple coming, you know, they're lovely, you know, like, hi, this is how God made us, etc. And, and there we are, basically preaching a gay gospel. I'm praying more than Steve is. I'm praying Monday to Thursday at university. Steve's really only praying kind of Friday, Saturday, Sunday when I'm around trying to help him in the midst of that, even though God is breaking open these gifts within his life. I've also got a community there with me seven days a week alongside me as much as possible trying to foster a spirit of prayer and intimacy within me. Several months down the line, Steve and I are seen to be this sort of, you know, the archetypal gay Christian couple. And we're even beginning to say, well, maybe we should get some form of blessing on our relationship. And I'll be honest with you, deep down inside of me, I'm still thinking, am I really deep down actually a heterosexual woman in the wrong body? Because I'm so feminine and I'm so camp, etc. And um, 
then the work really begins to start happening. And I say the work, I mean the Lord himself. So I had the invitation to life in the Spirit Seminar and the commitment to Jesus. I said yes to the Holy Spirit with this exemplary gay couple. But my prayer is this. I'm told the Holy Spirit will come and he will teach you all things, all truth. Now, I deliberately chose this picture at the bottom left because my eyes, my, the way I see the world is totally through the rainbow of gay pride. It's all I know. It's all I've seen. It's the place where I've found most belonging. But suddenly, I am starting to being loved just for who I am, just where I am, just as I am, by all these other young Catholics. And some others not Catholic who hang around with the other young Catholics because that's what happens, and a few of you doing that here. That's great. And things begin to start changing in my life like crazy because what's happening is I'm going deeper into prayer. I'm beginning to feel more and more uncomfortable with the sexual stuff that's in and around my life. I'm about 20, 21 at this stage. So we're talking since the age of eight, my life has almost daily, because of the porn addiction, etc., been riddled with the sexy stuff. I've never broken away from it. And I'm engaging in that in this way with Steve as well. And suddenly I come to a point where I realise I'm feeling so uncomfortable. I said to Steve, Steve, can we, can we start wearing pyjamas? It's not the conversation many gay couples have with each other, I want to be honest with you. And he kind of looked at me like I've got three heads, but said, look, I really love you, okay, if you want to. But, and I'm telling you this deliberately, because what happened is that day, I drew a line in the sand. The Spirit was encouraging me to draw a line in the sand. I was drawing a line called chastity. Chastity. It was the first time since being the age of eight that suddenly I was now beginning to start saying, hang on a minute, maybe my body and everything about me is not what I believe it to be. For the first time in my life. To the point whereby within several months, the great Christian archetypal gay couple, I begin to doubt everything. My walls are beginning to crumble. And literally, all those lovely rainbow colours, I mean, I love the rainbow because it's about God's unconditional love. The gay community has stolen it in some way. But what's happening is I begin to truly understand God's unconditional love for me. And I begin to see the full picture of what love is really about. And that actually, I have a dignity. And that I'm called to purity. And I'm called to be a saint, as we said there at the beginning. So literally, I'm stood there with this great guy and I've got a choice to make. Is it Christ or is it Steve? Is it Christ or is it Steve? I made a choice. You're not my choice, of course. It was Jesus. Because what happened is I was being wooed by the greater love of a man. So hear me. It's not that my love, my love for Steve was I was looking for the great man. Every one of us is looking for the great man. We're looking for the great lady too, of course. But I was looking for the great man. And what happened is, Satan had taken that and he twisted it. Satan cannot create anything. He can only twist what's good. That's why in all of our sin, God is speaking to us in everything. Satan wants to beat you up. God says, I just want to have a dialogue with you. Serious. Everything. Everything you do wrong or don't do, God wants a dialogue with you. That's all he wants. No condemnation for you when you're in him. I tell you this, it's very important I tell you this. I had that group of young people there around me to support me. I'm talking people in their early 20s, mid-20s, who are there saying, we'll walk with you as you finish this relationship. 
But there was one priest I knew very, very well, and he was, I was very close to him. I just, he was a good friend of mine. He'd become a good friend at that time, and I'd learned to trust him too. And he said to me, you finish with Steve, are you mad? Go back to him. He's the best thing you'll ever have. The same is what my Anglican um, uh, priest friend told me as well. He said to me, go back to Steve. You'll never find a relationship like that. You two have got the best gay relationship I know. And you know something? He was right. They were both right. It was, I believe, the best gay relationship. But that wasn't the best for my life and what God wanted for my soul and for my soul journey as a man. And at this stage, I don't know what it means to be a man. So I have to cut off everything to go with the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God for what happened. You know, I could not have made that journey if I hadn't had a group of people to go to. The reason why the head teacher at school couldn't take me into his office and say, what happened? what's been happening to you for these past three years, all this abuse, is because there was no group there to take me in my pain towards himself and walk with me. But God never leaves or abandons his children. None of us, never, never, never. He gave me a new community. And it was only in that place of chastity where reality really hit me. I'm going to be honest with you, it hurt. And it hurt a lot. Because all those incidents I've been describing to you, the three-year-old with his, pant, with his trousers pulled down, the five-year-old in the girls' school, the, the, the tears on the corner of the school at the age of six, seven, you know, the sexual abuse through eight to 11, I'd forgotten literally all of that. I'd stuffed all of it down to my subconscious. That's why when God says, I will send my Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'll send the Spirit and he will teach you all things. The Spirit of God began to show me in my prayer and in my intimate time with him exactly what was going on in my life. So how did God bring about a sense of restoration and healing? And I want to say this to you, you know, um, it's really important I say this because there's a lot of misrepresentation about what I say out there as well today. God has a problem with one thing, the fact that we aren't totally able to live in the full freedom of his love. It's the only problem God has. And he solved that problem by sending Jesus. <laughs> That's it. So it's not about being gay or straight or whatever or any of these different things. It's about will I bring myself before the cross of Christ and let him shine his light on me and to illumine me where I need to be able to repent or I need to walk with him or I need to step out in faith or whatever it is I need to do. Some people say that I want people to go from being gay to straight and the rest of it. I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I said, none of my business. None of my business is what God does with anybody's life. My role is to point people towards the light of the world and to invite them in faith to trust as God has been teaching me and is teaching all of us to trust in faith. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K, if you didn't know. <laughs> Serious. It's risky. Faith is, I can't see it. I don't, I don't know I really even believe it, but I'm willing to step out that boat onto the water and believe that I will float somewhere down the line. That's faith. That's what God honours. That's why he speaks about it, about Abraham in the book of Hebrews. Restoration and healing. Prayer quietness I began to become still I was going to a wonderful Christian therapist and you know this man was was totally in tune with the Holy Spirit he had to be because whenever he was being an incredible father figure to me he would stand over me and he would affirm me and he'd be wonderful towards me but if ever we dealt with anything to my childhood sexual abuse he would kneel down in front of me 
And he would take the lowly position in front of me and he'd look me in the eyes. Because, of course, when I was being abused, I was the little guy and the, infer- the superior guy was always having his way with me and abusing me and using me. So this man learned what it was to walk sensitively before me. So I mean when Christ provides for us in all circumstances. But one of the most powerful things in my life was this, was God's word. I put a little S in front because I mean God's sword. His, the, the sword of the spirit is his word. And it felt a little bit like the Holy Spirit was deciding to make a nest on my head. <laughs> Not a pretty sight, but a lovely experience. Because what happened is every time a worm would rise up, I'm no good, I'm so ugly because I'm not God's work of art. The Holy Spirit would come down, peck out the worm, and in a sense, would say, that's a lie. You've got to believe what God's word says. And literally what happened is divine surgery began to take place on my soul, on my emotions, on my mind, onto my whole being, literally. I am this shattered, broken, confused person who's probably, if I hadn't found the Holy Spirit, today would have had his penis chopped off. Sorry to be so blunt, but there's a lot of people now having it done. And it's going to get worse. That's why the messaging you're hearing here is so important. And to know that cross is the answer to all the pain that our world is experiencing out there today. I had to take every thought captive. I remember one Lent, um, coming before the Lord, you know, saying, you know, what will I give up for Lent? What am I going to give up for Lent, Lord? So I'm there in prayer and I'm saying, okay, Lord, what do you want me to give up? And he said, um, I don't want you to give up anything, James. The sense I had, and I mean a sense, because God doesn't like talk to me like that, you know, but I had a sense. I had a sense he was saying to me, inviting me to fall in love with myself. He said, but I'm in love with you and you're not. And I want you to love you like I love you, so you can love your neighbour as you love yourself, and therefore you can love me. And over those 40 days, I took a different scripture. And many of these scriptures balked inside of me. I was uncomfortable with them. And I said, you are the head and not the tail. Well, I believed I was the tail. I'd been so badly abused. I was so broken inside. And I had to learn to offer it, to give the word that, Lord, I'm not the tail. I have to believe and choose to believe I'm the head. There's a beautiful scripture. The message um, the version of the Bible says, you are born not of human sperm, but of the imperishable word of God. I just thought, well, I was an accident. You know, quick love affair, three weeks, you know, and suddenly there we are, I'm here. And God's saying, no, I called you into being and every one of you. Do you know what the most beautiful thing about Tasmania is? This art gallery in front of me. This art gallery in front of me. It's beautiful. Amazing. God, it's true. He created all that stuff out there. We reflect the face of God himself. The Lord began to work on my identity itself. I saw myself as one given up, cast out, abandoned. I saw myself as somebody that just needed to be used. You know, if you look at my face carefully, not too close now, um, but carefully, I've got a lot of scars. Because, you know, at the age of eight, bang, I'd walk into a wall. Oh, he's cut his forehead there. Bang, I'd walk into this. Oh, he's cut his eyebrow there. You know, I stuck a needle in one eye. I had a scalpel in another eye. Thank God I can see. I'm serious. I totally dissociated from this body. Who wouldn't? And the Lord began to restore me into this body. And he began to restore me and show me that I truly am a man. I remember being this kind of... um, camp Anglican, not that I'm Anglican's a camp, I just happened to be camp and I was Anglican at the time, okay? So there I was, on the camp, I'm, I'm camp and I'm an Anglican and I'm saying, Lord, I've got no idea what it means to be a man. 
On this particular day, as I'm sitting there learning to be still, learning to let God dialogue with me, that means two-way stuff, you know, double listening to one of talking, okay? And I have a sense, he said, I want you to go to my mother. I'm like, ooh, that's a bit Catholic, you know? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, go to my mother. I want you to go to my mother. And the only thing I had about Mary in the whole of my bedroom, I got some cassette from some conference, and there was a song called Gracious Lady on it. It said, Gracious Lady, woman clothed with a son, be a mother to me, be a woman to me, be a wife to me. And the chorus went, fill me up with your mothering, fill me up with your motherliness, fill me up with your wifeliness, fill me up. They were the words of the song. And I thought, well, I'll just listen to this song in my prayer time. In the, ear, if, if, the earphones. And I listened and listened and listened. And all I can say to you is this. At one point, several days later, in seeking to be obedient to what the Lord was asking of me to go to his mother, for a millisecond, I was in the presence of Mary, the mother of God. And in her presence, I knew two things. I knew there was such a thing as purity. And I knew I didn't have it. But I knew it's what she wanted. Basically, her son had died to give me that, that I could be like her. And the second thing is this, she was woman and I wasn't. And there I am, this camp kind of guy thinking, oh, I don't know, etc. And suddenly at the very core of my being, I'm being told, you are a man. And suddenly I could not deny that. So Mary said, come on, let me walk the journey with you. And all she ever does is point us to Christ. If you're even slightly scared of Mary, whoa, Satan wants you. You've nothing to be frightened of with Mary. She'll just point you to Jesus. It's all she can do. And there she is helping me there. I'm beginning to take on the truths of God. And I'm beginning to bring every single thought, as I said, taking every single thought captive. I'm building community around me. I'm learning what it is to trust again. And I'm learning to be known. And I had to come clean with all my stuff. And learn that actually I'm lovable in the midst of everything I've done. I feel no shame in telling you that I was raped, that I was abused, stuck with pornography, you know, all these different things that, you know, different fetishes and all the rest of it. I feel no shame because the cross of Christ has taken that from me. Because, I, because what happened is I was, woo, I'd say amen. Sorry about that. That woke you up. <laughs> I could do my African lady. Anyway, okay. Sorry. Mark knows I'm black inside, don't worry. Um, I learned what it was to trust and I learned what it was to be known. And that's the invitation that God is giving us. Paul was talking today. Beautifully about what it is, you know, is, is the Lord wants to, us to come out of our darkness into the light, to be known by each other. I will probably say a bit more about this tomorrow, but you need to hear this several times from me. Do you know, most of you here, I say most of you, because actually I know the number of women who are struggling with pornography is rising rapidly. Whenever I meet a guy, I say to him, well, how's your porn addiction going? He looks at me like I've got two heads. I'm like, no, I expect you to have a porn addiction rather than not have a porn addiction today. That's the reality of where we're living. So we haven't got to pretend. We can find a community where we can learn to trust and be known. I know you hate it. I know it's killing you. I know you're being pulled back to it. I know. And he knows. And he loves you for who you are, where you are. But unless we bring our darkness into the light, 
the darkness can't be vanquished. Yeah, I gave in. I became a Catholic. There I am, 24 years of age. I'm actually getting in the car to the Easter Vigil. And I'm saying to my friends, well, I might not go through with this, you know. I really might not go through this. I might not go through with it. I get received in the church and I sit and weep for half an hour. <laughs> I've come home. <laughs> I've come home. I've come home. <laughs> this mess. <laughs> I came home. I was, raised in a, I was raised in a land where there's blood of the martyrs everywhere. We laugh at Catholics in the UK. Remember, I was raised to laugh at the statues and the Mary and the candles and all that stuff. Well, look, that's periphery stuff compared to knowing Jesus. I mean, Jesus is that candle, is that light. You know, the, the statues call us, imagery calling us towards him. Our mother inviting us into that tender, intimate relationship. Anyway, long as I became a Catholic at 24. Um, my parents weren't very pleased, to say the least. But then I got a job in the Vatican at 25, because you do, don't you, you know? <laughs> Serious. I got a job in the Vatican at 25, helping John Paul II with a worldwide retreat for priests that he wanted to put on at that time. So I found myself going over to Rome, and it was during that time that I actually, well, I was working on this retreat, and then the money got pulled from underneath the, the, um, uh, the retreat itself. And I ended up working on evangelization across Africa and the Middle East. And it was there that I met a great guy called Dr. Mark Nemo. So, <laughs> and we're both looking at each other these days like, is it like, is this it's like really you? Like Harari, uh, yeah, sorry, Harari, yeah, Joe Berg, yeah, Joe Berg, yeah, was it, was it London? And then, you know, we literally, we've been following each other around the world. Well, I'm following him because he's my, you know, oh, anyway. Um, anyway. <laughs> Why do I tell you about being in the Vatican? Apart from the fact that it was a great honour for me to, there, to work at the very heart of the church itself, I want to tell you maybe two or three very little short stories. Is one thing is this, is in the midst of my prayer, I was learning to listen some of you got journals around. I'm delighted to see that. Because God does want to speak to us. The most common phrase in the Bible is, and God said. <laughs> they say it's 364 times. Once every day, God wants to go, hello, I love you. Okay, at least that. The second most common phrase, apparently, is, do not be afraid. So if you get nothing else at this talk, God is saying to you, stop being afraid. Constantly, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. My love will drive out all fear. That's what perfect love does. So there I am in Rome, and um, uh, uh, I'm learning to, to listen to the Lord. And I have a sense of the Lord saying, you know, I want you to learn to play the guitar. Well, I, I was being paid by the church. It's not a lot, you know. Anyway, so I'm paid by the church. And I found this old guitar down in the crypt in the seminary, the English seminary there. And I got, bought some string. I've just said to him, look, can I use this? I said, yeah, sure, restring it, do what you like. So I got this, and I learned just to play a few tunes and I learned every morning to get up and I learned to worship the Lord every morning from my lounge room and in the course of summertime well from February onwards to about November in Rome it's pretty hot so my, my window's open I'm singing away to Jesus in the first floor of my apartment whatever uh, quite near the, 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 uh, the historical centre about a year into the job I get a phone call one day 
And it's this Polish-sounding voice. <laughs> he goes, pronto, you know, like they do in Italy, hello. And uh, this Polish voice says to me, look, can you, um, can you come tomorrow morning and come to Mass with the Holy Father and, uh, and bring the staff with you from the office? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, you know? Oh, yeah, and bring your guitar and, and you know, play two or three songs if you can, you know, the opening song and offertory, etc. I'm thinking, this is a joke. Like this, you know? Like, yeah, 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 okay, like this. And I hang up the phone. Then my Italian secretary walks in and, you know, she's sort of smoking with her hair flying all over the place. You know, who was that man on the phone? Who was that man on the phone? You know, <laughs> sorry Italian ladies, you know. But, you know. And I said, oh, it's some guy pretending he's from the Pope's office. What did he say? I said, he said, come to Mass tomorrow morning with the Holy Father. She goes, that's so exciting. I said, it can't be true. She said, why not? I said, because this guy said to me, bring your guitar and play some music. I said, I've never played my guitar outside of the flat and nobody knows I play the guitar. Then she said, what if it is true? Are you going to stand at the Pope? I thought, So, working at the Vatican, I, I've got a mate, Brian. We've all got a mate in the Vatican, you know. So I called and said, Brian, you know, um, got a phone call through. He was saying, you know, um, come along to, to Mass tomorrow morning with the Holy Father. Oh, yeah, said Brian. Yeah, Brian talks about that. Oh, yeah, he said. I said, he said, uh, he said bring your guitar and play, play guitar. Oh, yeah, said Brian. I said, well, nobody knows I play the guitar. He goes, oh, I do. I told the Pope you played. <laughs> I'm telling you this because I'm saying you never know. You really never know what God's got planned for you tomorrow. The first time I ever played the guitar in public was for John Paul II in his chapel, you know. <laughs> saints alive, they are. Saints alive. Anyway, it was a, it, that's one thing. But the other thing that was really important when I was in the Vatican is this, is every day we'd have Mass. And we would go down to the basement of the office. Mark might remember the office where it was for a time. We'd go to the basement, we had a big table, and we'd throw a cloth over the table. And there together we'd sit at that Eucharistic table. And as soon as the liturgy of the word would begin, I was there intently listening to the word. What is the word saying to me? The Lord's sword coming to cut away at the tumours inside of me and the cancers inside of me. The liturgy of the word every day is there to come and cut another part of us free because it's away from the bonds and the bondage that we're in by the time we hit the eucharistic prayer at the beginning of it i would be weeping i would weep through the eucharistic prayer i'd weep through through holy communion and then literally after post-communion prayer i kind of dry up it's like oh he's finished crying again my work colleagues would think that went on for 18 months 18 months i cried every day at mass and at the end of it, I said to the Lord, Lord, I have no idea what you've been doing. I'm exhausted, but I, I, I feel refreshed in a whole different way. And the Lord then began to speak to my heart, and he was saying this to me. The, the bowels, if you like, of a Vatican office, he was healing me of my childhood sexual abuse. He was saying, you think that like earthly food, you consume me. You don't. Every time you think you're receiving me, I'm actually receiving you. And I'm transforming you into myself. And that's why I stand before you here today and I say, I love this body. I may not be the sexiest thing on legs, ladies, but I don't really care. <laughs> I don't, because it's not about that. It's about the fact that God has not made a mistake with my anatomy. And he's not made a mistake with your anatomy. Look, we all want a little bit of a tuck in and think about what actually we do. And we, we don't really we just want to be loved for who we are, where we are. And God's saying, I'm already doing that. Will you let me do it some more, please?
But I'm saying it to you because the church is getting hammered like crazy about childhood sexual abuse. And yet the Catholic Church has the response that our world is crying out for in the whole area of broken sexuality and particularly around pornography and particularly around the transgender stuff and particularly around childhood sexual abuse. And Satan knows it and that's why he's trying like crazy to hammer and to degrade our priests. And we have to encourage our priests left, right and centre. Thank God for those men. I thank, I'm serious. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Father. I don't tell many people this, but I try and do at least two or three notes a week. I write to a priest and say, thank you for being a priest. I think we all need to start doing it a little bit more. They need a lot of love and a lot of encouragement. Great guys. Lay down their lives if they have. I made inner vows that affected my belief system. I had entrenched beliefs. And those entrenched beliefs began to be lived out as learned behaviours. They can also be seen as being like walls and gates and towers. All of us, I'm talking more about this tomorrow, we build walls, gates and towers to protect our hearts from being hurt again. From being abused again. I'm not talking necessarily sexually. We might feel mentally or physically or spiritually or emotionally or even friendship abused. There's a lot of that goes on Facebook and stuff. Oh, anyway. But we can also feel neglect as well. But the walls, the gates and the towers come. And it's important that if we want to truly live in the fullness of freedom and live life to the full, as it says in John 10.10, that we're able to examine what those walls, gates and towers are and they come crumbling down as they need to. The Lord also told me to go and face, to find and to forgive five people. The first person I went, well, the the five people altogether with this was Steve, my ex. She's several years on now. To find my birth parents to go back and face my two abusers, my two childhood abusers. So there I was in my late 20s. I flew over from Rome one day and I went and met. I found it took me about a year and a half to find the teacher who'd abused me. And I went back to his home and I went there to release forgiveness to him, to his face. I could only do that if he was repentant. Hear me, I'm not there to forget. God forgets our sin. He doesn't ask us to forget where we've been wounded, okay? But he does ask us to forgive us. He forgives our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. So I'm there to free him. I'm also there to free myself from the effects of what he's done to to me as well. And we had this amazing time together, the two of us, and an amazing time of prayer, and I forgive him. The same happens with the older friend of my older brother, who incidentally wasn't a paedophile. He was just basically a bit of a... um, warmed up is the wrong phrase to use a horny teenager I think is probably the best thing to say really and he had access to a kid and so he used me you know and a lot of us have been harmed by each other possibly at different stages not all of us but some of us have and I want to say don't be frightened of bringing this to the Lord in your own time in the way you need to the Lord is saying to me in Joel 2.25 I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten now, there weren't many locusts in London, let me tell you. But anyway, but in, this, in the spiritual sense, he said, I want to restore to you back into all your relationships. I got back into a relationship with those two men. I went and found Steve. Now, Steve, remember, Steve had been the big kind of hulking, sort of muscly, tattooed metal guy. I got around to Steve's place. And by this point, my walk has changed. My shoulders are back and my voice has dropped. And I'm a man, basically. The true man has been slowly rising up and out of me. I love it. I love being a man. 
lovely guy, isn't he great? Anyway, um, and I love the good ladies, love ladies. Anyway, but, um, but the thing is this, I got back to Steve and Steve, Steve is basically half his body weight. He's riddled with HIV. He's as camp as can be. He basically went back into the gay community and I watched his life evaporate in front of him. There is literally in every decision we made a choice of life or a choice of death. And I don't mean that as a judgment on anybody. I never mean it as a judgment on anybody, but I'm saying God's word is true. He says, choose life. I found my birth mother, which was a wonderful experience. You know, I got my twin sister one side and my mum here, and then there's my birth mum here, and I'm thinking, oh, a bit emotional, but, the, but I was holding Mary's hand all the way through. I could face my mother wounds and my mother pain because I was in relationship with my perfect mother. Seriously. And then I went to find my birth father. I didn't tell you which country my birth father's from. Some of you here know. I'm half Syrian. And my birth family's in Aleppo. I think you might have heard of it. I have eight brothers and sisters there. Well, I have four of them still there now. 14 of my nieces and nephews still live in Aleppo today. Um, I look forward to my regular text from my brother in Saudi to see whether or not they're still alive or not. They're all sunny Muslims. But suddenly I'd gone from being the youngest of five children, youngest equal, to becoming the oldest of my father's ten children. Long and short of it is this, I felt the Lord was telling me to go and find my father. I had very little information. I'm going to make this a really quick story because I don't want to have you here all night. Long and short of it is this, is, um, his name is Ahmed. <laughs> have you ever tried to find Ahmed in the Middle East? <laughs> Look, that's the sense of humour of our father, okay? He's like, go and find Ahmed. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's a long story, but I'll tell you what happened. In my prayer... Prayer, listening to God for his word. I had the strongest sense I have to go now to Syria. Three weeks after this, I got a break of a week. So literally I booked a flight and I went to Syria. I flew into Damascus. I took a bus between Damascus through Homs up towards Aleppo. Cost me about 50 cents for a six hour journey over the sand in this bus, you know. Hot. Within 48 hours, I'd found Ahmed. I found him. But not just that, but in those 48 hours, the first night I stayed in the hostel, I bumped into the Greek Catholic Archbishop at that stage. You said, come and stay in my palace. The Lord provided me with daily mass and a six-foot statue of our Blessed Mother there outside my bedroom. In the middle of sunny Aleppo with all the fundamentalists, the rest of it. That's God. That's God. That is the God we serve. Remember my normal childhood? What's your childhood like? Normal childhood? So what's he got planned for you? Because I'm nothing exceptional. Actually, I am exceptional because so are you. We're all exceptional in God's work of art. I found all five people. The day I met my father, he walked towards me. It was today's gospel reading in some way. My father walked towards me. He embraced me. He kissed me on both cheeks and he looked me in the eyes and he said in his lovely Syrian English accent, I am proud of you for coming. That day I grew another 12 feet. I had the affirmation of my father and his welcome and his love. And it was only from then, when I went back, that I could then turn around and ask my then girlfriend if she would take my hand in marriage. Because suddenly I knew who I was as a man, clearly and firmly. Not only was I affirmed by my eternal father, who was saying to me, look, even if your earthly father rejects you, I'll never reject you or forsake you. So he says in Isaiah, 
But God gave me that affirmation. He was saying to me, don't be frightened of turning up any of the stones in your life. And then truly you can have peace and you can live life to the full. Whoops. Final veil. Let me talk about the final veil bit first of all. This was really important for me as a man as well. The Lord took me back in my own prayer to a point in the womb itself. Now people say, oh, God can't do that. Well, something happens in the womb. Remember the story about Mary visiting Elizabeth? And what does Elizabeth say? Whoa, somersault's happening. John's having to go inside me here, that's for sure. (laughs) We know this power of God happens in the womb. Of course it does. Of course it does. Remember that conception? It's all there. The Lord took me back and he showed me this. He showed me that basically in the womb, my mother's father died while she was pregnant. If he stayed alive, she probably felt she could have kept the baby, which was really two babies, as you now know. So she felt failed by her dad. Her lover, had, who she'd been with for three weeks, had flown abroad. She didn't have any contact details. Here she was pregnant, as she, was, she had been in her marriage, but hadn't been, so her lover failed her. And then she had to humbly go and ask permission from her estranged husband for his signature on the adoption form so she could give up these two kids for adoption. And he mocked her. Three men failed her. The Lord was showing me that deep, deep in my heart, I had taken on a wall, a gate, a tower, you name it, whatever I had, is I made the the vow I was not going to trust men, but I was created male. So when I came out of the womb, I might not have been created to be same-sex attracted, but I was certainly predisposed to never trusting men. But the Lord showed me that I had sinned even in my mother's womb say I'd sinned it's not like you know I was you know he's just showing there's an effect that touched my life and he wanted me to be free and I remember the night I said Lord if if this is what you're showing me then I repent little James in the womb repents now before you because all time is present before God of what the decision is he made and I choose this day to welcome my masculinity and welcome manhood and welcome my place as a man among other men and I spent a lot a number of years running conferences and, and speaking to men as well Because that's the freedom that God wants to bring to all of us. The same is true for you as women too. You know, that forgiveness is what begins to really change things. So as I faced the mystery, because men were a mystery to me, because I'd built a wall between myself and my own kind, that mystery became eroticized. Eros, remember that word we talked about today as well? The unredeemed eros means I was grabbing, trying to find who on earth men were. Who am I as a man? I'm trying to grab it from all these other men. Was actually I needed to receive it from my father's voice. It was a deep, inner, invisible thing I was looking for. Not something that the LGBTQIAP plus 2S community is looking for today, trying to change all of our laws you know, to try and fit their own way. Even if you change the laws, it will not satisfy. And that saddens me for them because I want them to know life to the full too. Anyway, the new mystery course I did have was the shock is the night course. Once men were no longer a mystery to me and were created for mystery, I began to notice, oh, long hair, oh, curves. Oh, they smell good too. Woman. (laughs) Yep, there we are. (laughs) I'm hoping from some things I'm saying to you is, you know, there's a, There's a lot more to same-sex attraction and being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning intersex, asexual, allies, polyamorous, uh, plus, whatever, or two-spirited, than we realise the cross is the answer. There's no slave or master. There's no Jew or or Greek. There's no lesbian or straight or gay, etc. We're in Christ or we're not in Christ. 
You know, the gospel brings about the United States of the world. United everything comes under Christ. Otherwise, it's only division. These are some of the scriptures that I had to battle with at that time. And I had to learn to recognize that I had been bought with a price, that I belong to God. I'm a member of Christ's body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and who you have from God? And your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. I began to take on these scriptures and to learn them and to live out of those truths rather than out of all the, the wormed, stinking thinking that have been planted in my life from my conception onwards as well. The gifts of the Holy Spirit brought me God's sight and wisdom from God allowed me to make wise choices with my life. The gift of God's word, as I mentioned, brought about a divine surgery. I had to submit everything I think of myself to his word. If you've never done that, go through the Gospel of Mark, take every command and put your name in front of it. Sally, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. And, and you... You keep doing that until, you, until you've learned to submit your life to the word and that divine surge you need to have. You will find your identity, your true identity there. The gift of the sacraments, you know, and I need to touch, I need to feel, I needed to hear, and I needed the voice over me with absolution. There it was for me as well. And I do want to say this, and look, I don't want to push anybody here who's not Catholic, but I want to say to you, it, if you want to come home, Catholics can't keep pushing you, but I want to say this, you know, there's nothing like it. A guy came up to me in Sydney just recently. He was an ordinand for the Anglican Church, about to be ordained an Anglican um, priest. And he came and said to me, he said, um, I've got a bone to pick with you. It's a good bone. I said, okay. He said, I was an ordinand for the Anglican priesthood. He said, about two weeks out, all I could hear ringing in my ears was you, your flippant comment in a talk about five years ago. I said, what was that? He said, you said this, I found Christ through the Anglican Church, but I couldn't get well until I joined the Catholic Church. And he said to me, it hounded me, and he said, I did years of study, and I said, I just can't do this. I have to become Catholic. He said, and I became Catholic two months ago, he said, at the Easter Vigil, he said, and he just wept with me. He said, I love it, I love it. I came home, I'm like, I know, I know. And the two of us are crying. This isn't about a pride thing. I'm saying this to you humbly. I'm saying, within the sacraments, within the church itself, the gift of the magisterium, that calls us through the Holy Father as a reflection of our eternal Father. And through Mother Church, with Mary, our eternal mother, our forever daddy, our forever mum is waiting for us. Remember, I was stripped of all family, apart from my twin sister, and I still wanted, I was trying to eat into her identity as it was. I was individuated from her to become me and to be restored into family. And that's where we understand our human identity. That's where we understand our sexual identity. And that's where we're surrounded by our eternal siblings here on the walls and each other as well. We've got to face sin. The word for sin is hamartia, means missing the mark. Therefore, as Paul was saying to us today, there's a mark that God wants us to hit. There's a point, there's a destiny where God wants us to be. If the destiny of this cup is here balanced firmly on this music stand that's its destiny while it's here it's not in its destiny Bojewski Catholic philosopher from America says there's seven seven steps to sin it's like walking from the light on the ground floor down to darkness 
Sin, self-protection, habituation, self-deception, rationalization, technique, duty now turned upside down. And he says this about them. Basically, this cup is in the right place. It's hitting the mark. If it starts to miss the mark, it's balancing off there. We all lie in some way. The more we lie, the more we have to lie. I say, yeah, the cup's balancing there okay, but you can't see it, but it's actually it's not balancing totally on the music stand. I think, oh, it might fall off. I'll put it down here. So I'm doing, I'm going to step number two, self-protection. Every lie needs a protective layer or a bodyguard, like onion, layers of an onion. Number three, habituation. We lie out of need, then we learn to lie without needing to. We've moved over a boundary between lying and becoming a liar. We're pushing the cup further away from where it should be. We don't admit it should be where it, on, on the music stand. Self-deception, we start to lose track of the truth and to relieve discomfort, we start to believe our own lies. Number five, rationalization. Our grasp on the truth weakens. We blame truth, and truth is what we let each other get away with, what Paul called relativism today, and what Pope Benedict XVI was speaking a lot to us about. The relativist world that we live in. Technique, lying becomes a craft. No one could believe we could tell so many lies, or such big ones, that we'd start saying the whistleblower is now the liar. Yeah? Yeah? And then what happens, our sin is totally birthed, fully blown, when our duties turned upside down. We say that cup should never have been on the music stand in the first place. It belongs here on the floor. Bang. Once lying's accepted rather than condemned, it becomes required. As individuals, as a family, as a church, community, as a town, as a state, as a nation, even as a global family. This is where we are. This is what we're becoming. I'm going to break this open a bit more tomorrow for you. But when uh, President Obama says same-sex marriage is great and he calls Disney and Pixar and DreamWorks and says, right, I want some movies with lesbian couples and gay couples in quickly and with them kids, etc. He's basically saying, I believe what I've done is right and now I have to let the whole world believe it's right with me, irrespective of what the word of God says. My journey, therefore, I began by starting to with lying and hiding, more protective layers, you know, through the abuse, through the pornography, etc. I moved between a border of lying to becoming a liar. I had to begin to believe the lies I believed. I must be gay. The lesbian gay switchboard tell me I'm gay. My parents think I'm gay. My friends think I'm gay. I'm gay. Therefore, I must go out there and preach to the world that being gay is great and this is the way God's made me. I blamed truth, repeated falsehood, darkness required. I had to live fully in that identity. But then what happened is the light of the Holy Spirit took me on the narrow road and I began to make the ascent from the darkness back into the light and I'm still on that journey and I've walked literally with hundreds of people on this journey and I don't know where it's gonna, they're going to end up but I know this is we're all pointing each other towards Jesus and it's really, really beautiful. Today I find myself seeking to witness to the Holy Spirit about the fact that God is constantly up to healing work in our spirits, in our physicality, our intellect, in our creativity, in our emotional world, in our whole beings. Not just about sexuality, it's about us as a whole. Um, I found myself when I left Rome, going back to uh, London, and I ended up working with three cardinals, Cardinal Hume, Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, and Cardinal Vincent Nichols. And it was there in the midst of working with Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, I thought, oh, I'll quit the job after a few months because, you know, he's going he's gonna to change all of his staff. He changed every member of his staff but one. 
me. He kept me and then two months later, the child sex abuse crisis hit the Catholic Church in the UK. And the BBC wanted Cardinal Murphy O'Connor's head on a plate like the ABCs wanted Cardinal Pell's. So I've got a bit of a jittery cardinal at this stage. And I said, come on, take my hand. It's okay, we'll walk towards the cross. I'll talk you through it. (laughs) It's all right. There is nothing to be frightened of with the Lord. He takes our deepest traumas, our deepest darkness, our deepest lies, the deepest hiding, and he transforms it into something beautiful and glorious. And this day, he's using me in the midst of the Muslim community and the sports community. As I said to you, I didn't want to break a nail at sport at school. I love working in the sport community now. It's all turned upside down. That wasn't my pink cup. Thanks be to God. (laughs) (laughs) My world was about me. I get life today out of serving others. That's where true life is. When you lose your life, you find it. The cotton on your back lived once. It died so you could be clothed. Think about it. You're cotton in your sheets. Everything around us lives. When it dies, it becomes what it should be. I've had the opportunity to serve with three popes, a couple of saints, Mother Teresa and John Paul II, and others. Um, his eminence is three cardinals, the Queen, Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, um, 10 Downing Street, dealing with Prime Minister of the People. I was a normal, broken kid whose life was going nowhere but downhill. But I said yes to the Holy Spirit coming into my life, having no idea what he was going to do with me, Um, helping to create men's networks and men's groups, running a sex addict, the the only Christ-centered sex addicts program in UK and across Europe. I ran for two or three years as well. And I've run a group called Courage and Encourage for people with same-sex attraction. And you know what's been interesting about that group is I said, I just flung the doors open and said, anybody can come. Yeah, of course you can come. If you want to come and have a safe spiritual place to look at your sexy stuff, that's fine. Come along. I had an imam come once because he'd got nowhere else to go. I had Orthodox Jews coming because they'd got nowhere else to go. I had a Satanist come once. He said, tell me when the prayer time is. I'm getting out for that bit. God sent me a refreshments coordinator. What happened? They said, we're going to pray now. He said, I'll make the coffee. Off he went. I thought, great. We'll pray. And then the coffee's ready. Thank you, Lord. Even God can use, God can use even a Satanist. Open wide your doors, says John Paul. Open wide your doors. Don't be worried about where people are at. The doors are open wide for me and Steve to go in. God was at work in me in the midst of my dedicated gay relationship, all the rest of it, whether I was wearing makeup or not. Somebody looked at me and thought, I bet God's at work here. They didn't put me in a box or a group or anything else. They just said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I married, then I became a father, and God is still God. Today I'm still stubborn. I'm still proud. I still need love. But God is untwisting and remoulding me in accordance with his design, as Paul talked about, and in accordance with his will as well. That's possibly an unusual image to look at at the end. But you know what? The day in my prayer, when we invited the Holy Spirit, me and my prayer therapy guy, he said, I wonder where Jesus was in your childhood sexual abuse. And we prayed and we invited God to show me. And I expected Jesus to be there in his nice white robe, his hands stretched out, saying, here I was, I was in the room with you. The eight-year-old boy. And then what happened is this, is I waited and waited and waited, and I suddenly realized in the corner of this dark room there was a blob or something. It was kind of slightly moving. And it was in my own 
mind's imagination, if you like, whatever it's called, but it's going on there. <laughs> I looked and I suddenly realized there was this blooded, broken mess. There was Jesus. He never left me. He never abandoned me. He's never left you. And he's never abandoned you and he's not going to do it now. Because <laughs> he's faithful, full of belief in you, etc. This is the place that we come to to find life. Finally, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived all that God has prepared for those who love him, it says in 1 Corinthians. So what life to the full is the Holy Spirit bringing you to in these next few days, but also over the rest of your life? Because we're going to do a little bit of digging work and letting the Lord do what he wants to do with us tomorrow. Okay? Because whatever happens is, he wants to write love all over you. That's what you're made for. Woo! You preach it, Mark, my brother. You preach it. That's what it's about. So I, I'm going to pray for you. I want to pray for you now. Because you know what? Tonight is the start of the rest of your life and the fullness of that life. Father, I pray even now as I'm stood here and I'm looking at my brothers and sisters that you would bring dreams and that you would bring visions to my brothers and sisters here, the saints of the third millennium. I pray this very night that you begin to stir in them. Lord, not with fear. We know you're like, your love drives out that fear. They've got nothing to be frightened of. Show them they've got nothing to be frightened of, that you go ahead of them that you're ready and waiting as you've paid already for any area they hurt, where they feel abused, maybe, strong word, but maybe, or, or neglected, or where they just don't know who they are, where they don't feel like they're your work of art, where they don't understand what it is to be a part of your body, the church. I pray, Father, this very night, you would come with your Holy Spirit, Spirit that you would hover and you would bring order out of the chaos. And the last thing I pray, Father, is that you would affirm them <laughs> that truly they are your beloved son or daughter, and they are beautiful in your sight. And I pray this confidently because I know you've heard me. And in faith, you will answer me. In Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been great tonight. Thank you. That was James Parker with And the Walls Came Tumbling Down. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.